0: Within just a few years, we will spend more on interest payments than we will on national defense. That is a bright flashing warning sign that we are on an unsustainable path. And clearly it is unsustainable because the fastest growing part of our budget is interest payments. And when you have a debt that's growing faster than your economy, obviously something will have to give. To hear more about potential impacts of our increasing federal debt level, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. pushkin es and g are possibly the most explosive divisive three letters in the english language at least in financial markets circles the idea that investors can put their money to work along the grounds of environmental social and governance agendas basically use their money to do good It's in serious trouble. It was the hottest thing in finance. It was the hottest thing on Wall Street and in the city of London for the longest time. And now all of a sudden it's taking flak from all angles. And we are going to ask, is ESG dying? This is the Unhedged podcast from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I am Casey Martin, a markets columnist at the FT in London. And unusually today, I'm joined by an Unhedged podcast newbie, Simon Mundy, who is the editor of the FT's Moral Money. Simon, thank you so much. For rocking up and talking to us, has anyone ever questioned moral money as a label? Is mo- is money moral? Has anyone ever taken the mickey?
1: Yeah, very, very much so. So, one nice thing about the name, apart from the fabulous alliteration, is that it pushes certain <laughs> people's buttons, and uh, I think there is an assumption that we might be finger wagging and moralizing. Um, But really what it's about is digging into the ethical questions that underscore business, finance and capitalism as a whole. And as we're about to discuss, this is a great time to be exploring those questions.
0: So, I mean, God, where do we even start with this thing? It's just become such a kind of fevered Seen around ESG. But certainly when you first took on Moral Money, it was red hot. Every asset manager on the planet was saying, you know, we've got a better ESG strategy than those guys down the road. It was a real kind of competitive point. What has changed?
1: Yeah. So as you say, I started this particular job in the autumn of 2021. So just in the run up to COP26. And then there was this tremendous sense of momentum around private sector and public sector, government action also. But in particular, in the private sector, it was very notable. There was this sense of finally, people are finding religion on climate stuff. And of course, at COP26, that was the big launch party, effectively, among other things, for GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which was launched with a huge amount of fanfare under the leadership of Mark Carney and Michael Mm. Bloomberg. And you might remember that there was this press release which went out from GFANS saying $125 trillion of managed assets has been rallied behind the standard of net zero. And I remember seeing that and it just reminded me a bit of, do you remember when after the invasion of Iraq in Mm. 2003, George Bush did that press conference on an aircraft carrier with this banner behind (laughs) him saying, mission accomplished. And it reminded me a bit of that because, yeah, most of the biggest, at least Western, financial institutions had signed up to this, but had signed up to what exactly? There was very little costs involved immediately and upfront for these big financial institutions. But then when the rubber really started to hit Mm. the road, when... Conservative politicians in the US in particular started pushing back against this, we've seen a lot of that early enthusiasm fall away.
0: No, exactly. And so as as you mentioned, it has become a, like a real political hot potato in the States. It's a real kind of blue state, red state thing. The Republican controlled states, depending on who you listen to, will describe ESG investing as, you know, something approaching like some sort of you know, satanic communism that's a kind of rejection of, of of capitalism. What is it about ESG that, like, pisses people off so much? It seems to, it's just like low-key annoying for lots of people, but it's like massively annoying for, you know, right-wing politicians in the States. Why does it get people so hot under the collar?
1: Well, I think it's particularly in the US that it does get people hot under the collar. The sort of more proximate reason the last couple of years has been that conservative media, notably Tucker Carlson during his cut short career on, on Fox News, um, decided to really make it a, a drum that he kept on beating. It was really, I think, blown out of proportion as this sort of stalking horse for all sorts of great social changes. But the, the, the larger structural reason goes back much, much longer And I think it is to do with the huge clout that oil and gas companies have historically had in the US. Mm. So companies, including ExxonMobil, it's well documented that they funded various sorts of sort of pseudo-scientific research intended to create the impression that there was uncertainty about the causes of climate change.
0: Which there isn't.
1: Which there isn't, to be clear. I mean, the reason why so many people contest the climate science, of course, is because it's bloody inconvenience for a lot of people who've been making a lot of money from the fossil fuel economy, which is one of the biggest parts of the economy and has been for, for literally centuries. There are going to be a lot of losers among this very, very wealthy and powerful group of people who have had a lot of money to disperse on various politicians on the right in the US, as well as various think tanks who have been promoting this agenda. So I think that really helps to explain it.
0: So it's become a really difficult terrain for investment managers to navigate when they go to the States and sell their products. I guess, for me, a few things have really gone wrong since then. First of all, a lot of these funds lately have just sucked because they haven't got very many oil stocks in them for obvious reasons. And oil stocks did really well after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The other thing that went wrong around Ukraine is that that forced a massive rethink on all of those investors who said, right, we don't buy defence stocks because they don't fit our criteria. Suddenly it became, oh, hang on. I think perhaps now we do buy defence stocks for the companies that are arming Ukraine. So that kind of chipped away at the rationale for a lot of this. But then a couple of things have happened since then quite recently, right? Just this year, one of them is uh, Exxon, the oil company. It's kind of an empire strikes back moment, right? It's suing some activist investors. And there's also this thing called Climate Action 100, which is supposed to be this kind of collection of big investment houses, you know, all kind of getting together to make the world a better place. Tell us about what's going on there, because this has all gone very pear-shaped, hasn't it?
1: Yeah. So these are two really, really interesting case studies, which both tell you quite a lot about where we stand Mm. in this space. So to start with the ExxonMobil one, seems to me that Exxon's real target here is not actually Follow This, the Dutch activist group which brought the petition. It's the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission of the US, which a couple of years ago changed their rules to make it slightly easier for these sorts of activist groups to do what Follow This did, which was to buy a relatively small number of shares in ExxonMobil to use their capacity as a shareholder then to propose a resolution at Exxon's shareholder meeting to require, that would require the company to do Mm. more on reducing its So you buy
0: shares in an oil company and then basically tell it to stop producing oil?
1: Yeah, now you are a part owner of the company, even Mm. if you only own a few shares, and therefore you have the rights under these SEC rules to try and bring a a resolution, which would, in the best case, as has happened a couple of years ago, actually, someone did this and actually managed to get a couple of directors onto the Exxon board. But even if you don't succeed, you've embarrassed the company, you've forced them to put it on the agenda, discuss it at the meeting. And and companies just, in many cases, don't like this. ExxonMobil then decided, right, enough of this. We're going to start a, we're going to file a lawsuit against, follow this, for filing a frivolous resolution and interfering with our corporate business. Follow this, then thought, right, well, we definitely can't afford to fight this suit with, with Exxon. We withdraw the shareholder resolution. But Exxon then interestingly said, "Okay, fine, you can do that, but we're still going to keep on suing you. Uh, And I think the reason they're doing that, and they've made it quite clear in their public messaging as well, is that they really don't think follow this and similar activists should be allowed to bring these sorts of resolutions in the first place. And they want to force the SEC to change its position. They want they want the courts, in fact, to establish a precedent which forces the SEC to change its approach. But,
0: But you talk to a lot of ESG pointy heads, right? I mean, they must think, you know, if this succeeds, this basically completely knocks out shareholder activism, right?
1: I don't think it would come to that. I I presume what Exxon would be wanting is that you have to own a certain number of shares in the company, right. or perhaps you have to have owned them for a certain period of time. I don't think they're trying to say that shareholders in general shouldn't be allowed to file resolutions, but just that an activist group can't buy a token number of shares gotcha. and take it from there. Now, the second one that you mentioned, for me, is even more interesting. Yeah.
0: So for those who are completely unfamiliar, what is Climate Action 100?
1: 100 plus, because there's now more than 100 plus. companies. 100, <laughs> climate Action 100 plus is a grouping of asset managers. And it was set up to try and form a group that, through which these asset managers could push the companies they invest in to do better right. climate change. And there were two phases. First phase, they're going to push these companies to give more information and better information around their environmental risks and impacts. So far, so good. No one can argue against more information. Well, you can argue that it imposes costs and hassle on the companies. But that's relatively plain vanilla. But the second phase was when they were saying, right, now we've got this information. We're going to push these companies to reduce their emissions. And that's really a qualitatively different thing. You're no longer just asking for information. You are now telling companies how they should be behaving and how they should be running their businesses in a way that may or may not be in the interests of your customers, your investors, the people who have got their money in your funds. So that's when it gets more complicated. That's what the conservative politicians in the U.S. have been particularly vocal about. And that is why you're now seeing some of the biggest U.S. institutions pulling away from these initiatives. Yeah, these because, are some
0: big name investors, right? Yeah. State Street has gone, J.P. Morgan Asset Management has gone, Pimco has gone. BlackRock has kind of semi gone.
1: BlackRock, I mean it, it's very interesting what what BlackRock's been doing more generally because if you're Larry Fink, you're in a, a, a kind of Larry strange Fink, Mr. position. BlackRock. Mr. BlackRock, the, the the chief executive and, and founder of BlackRock. I mean, you are one of the most powerful people in global business, mm-hmm. one of the most powerful people in the world there's always a risk it's going to go to your head a bit. I mean, he's only human like the rest of us. Yeah. And one interpretation of what happens at BlackRock is that maybe it went to his head a bit in, in the sense that two or three years ago, Larry Fink was really presenting himself as the standard bearer for enlightened capitalism. We as BlackRock are in a position of great influence and we have a responsibility to use that influence and power Mm. for good to align these assets that we manage with net zero, with the energy transition. And that might sound unimpeachable. The problem is that these Republican politicians in the US, some of the objections they make are silly, but not all of them are silly, Mm. actually. And there was one particular exchange a while ago which I found very interesting when it was a group of attorneys general in the US who wrote a letter to BlackRock. And they said, look, you have said that you are going to align your investment decisions that you make on behalf of your clients as a fiduciary. You're going to align those decisions with a 2050 net zero emissions scenario. The problem with that is that according to the top climate scientists, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, unfortunately, that looks unlikely. Right. Therefore, you are basing these long-term investment decisions on a scenario that is unlikely. Therefore, that cannot be in the the interest of your clients. You have to make these decisions based on the scenario you expect to see, not on the scenario you would like to see. BlackRock replied to that letter saying, we cannot just ignore climate risk. Climate risk is a financial risk really just begging the question and not properly answering it. And I thought, in my personal opinion, and even though I have a lot of problems with a lot of things that come from Republican politicians these days, (laughs) that letter from the attorneys general was written by one or more very good lawyers who made some good points under the law. And BlackRock's response came across as a lot of hand-waving, actually. So there are some serious points there. And now I think these asset managers are are taking it seriously. And the reason why, for me as someone who wants to see a serious response to climate change, the reason why I'm not necessarily unhappy about this is because I think what needs to happen here is changes in government policy. Right. And perhaps we've been kidding ourselves for too long that government policy can kind of not change that much, that the private, the private sector, sector will take care of it. Save the world. I think we're yeah. now waking up to the fact that that's... Pretty unlikely to happen.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot there. But you put it all together, you have the kind of recent poor performance of ESG funds. You have this sudden questioning around what it really is and how it should work, and how, you know, one person's high moral standing is not the same as another person. So it's really difficult to kind of cookie cutter this. Then you've got all these tensions around the Climate Action 100 plus group, around the Exxon situation. Put it all together for you, Simon. Do you think ESG is like in trouble? Do you do you get the impression that, you know, certainly like I couldn't move for people talking to me about ESG a few years ago. And now whew, nobody mentions it. It's not on the websites. It's not in the conversations. You know, it's just sort of disappeared. Is it dying?
1: I think we should zoom out a bit. So the fossil fuel age, you know, you look at what's happened in terms of technology, human population, life expectancy, you name it. The fossil fuel age has been by far the most transformational period Mm. of human history. We are now talking about the end of the fossil fuel age. This is one of the biggest things that has happened in the history of human civilization. So, is ESG in trouble? ESG as it's been constituted, as this sort of branch of the financial markets, this branch of the business sector, where people pursue things that are not necessarily financially viable, where it's not sort of in line with normal business logic, the, the sort of ESG agenda per se, that may be on its way out, or at least in its current form. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because the energy transition mm. is happening. And what's needed is to make sure that happens in the most effective and, and fair way possible. So that's going to require things like serious carbon pricing mm. in governments. That's a conversation that needs to happen. There's been concern over the past few years because everyone's saying, no, you know, the, the Davos guys are going to sort it out. So no, don't, sure, don't, don't, don't worry about the government. You know, um, now perhaps we move on to a more serious yeah. stage of the conversation where we update the rules and laws surrounding the capitalist right. business model. And then maybe we then say to the businesses, okay, now you can just go and make money. And that's fine because the laws are such that what makes money for you now is going to be aligned with sustainable outcomes for people and planet. We are a long way away from that, but I think that should be the, the target.
0: So the label dies, but the movement, for want of a better word, doesn't.
1: Yeah, fundamentally. I mean, if you look at what's happening with, quotes, ESG, investments, things that are labeled as ESG funds have been going through a tough time, both performance wise and in terms of flows, as you mentioned. But any asset manager who is not thinking about these factors, be it to do with environmental risk, to do do with the energy transition, to do with labor rights and abuses, if you're not thinking about those things, you're you're really letting down your end investors, and so I, I I think everyone is now incorporating these factors. You can call it ESG, or you can just call it taking all risks into account. As to whether things labelled as ESG grow and thrive, that for me is really less of a concern. Right. bigger picture.
0: Yeah, yeah. Big shifts. Good stuff. Thanks so much for taking us through that. We will be back in a minute with Long Short.
1: Liquid alternatives can offer some substantial diversifying returns, not only in a 2022 world where traditional asset classes are challenged, but also during a world where you have only a few asset classes delivering on their expected returns. And therefore, you need some genuine diversification within your portfolio. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGM's The
0: Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. It's time for Long Short, that part of the show where we go long a thing we love, short a thing we hate. Simon, you are uninitiated up to today on the Unhedge podcast, but this can be anything. It can be food. It can be something to do with ESG. It can be a sport. Whatever you like.
1: What are you long or short of? I'm long legacy media. (laughs) Now, I should declare an interest. My salary is paid by legacy media. The (laughs) FT is very much legacy media. We've been around for how many years? 135 or something like that. Um so I have a clear interest in this but nonetheless I'm I'm long legacy media and the reason is to do with AI actually uh-huh. the sophistication and depth of the misinformation that is now being yeah. propagated through AI You've probably had the same experience as me of being quite surprised by how many people, including quite well-paid, sophisticated people, in recent years, when you ask them where they get their news, they'll just say it oh, from social media. Yeah. That is becoming increasingly untenable because social media is so full of these things that even very clever people can't really tell whether mm-hmm. or not it's real or not real. You're going to need to pay people like the FT or like our <laughs> rivals, yeah. to put in the hard work of figuring out what's real and what's not and giving you a daily digest of what's actually been happening that's not in the form of deep fakes. So for that reason, I'm I'm long legacy media. Long legacy media now.
0: says legacy media man, for what it's worth. What say? <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with you. I am, I'm afraid I'm also long. I am long Sam Bankman-Fried, he's back, the FTX guy. Uh, He obviously was found guilty on, I believe it was seven charges of fraud and money laundering. His lawyers are basically appealing for a short sentence. In theory, he could go down for 100 years, seems excessive. His lawyers are looking for something more like five and a half to six and a half, so... Be lucky. They are describing him as a selfless, altruistic philanthropist. He just happens to have been found guilty on seven counts of fraud and money laundering. But um, thank heavens for SBF because he is the story and the gift that keeps on giving. Once again, Simon Mundy from uh, Moral Money at the FT. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have to leave it there.
1: Thank you very much, Katie.
0: If you like the sound of what Simon specializes in, then you'll be delighted to know he has a Moral Money newsletter. Sign up for it today. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Brian Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's Global Head of Audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Greta Cohn and Natalie Seidler. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedged offer. I'm Katie Martin. Thanks for listening.